Good morning. Good morning. I invite you to open your Bibles to Second Samuel chapter 13. Again, I'm uh, thankful for uh, the privilege to be with you all, uh, be with here, <laughs> be here with you all this morning. Uh, it was we've been here since last Wednesday, and have had a lot of opportunities to meet many of the saints in South Florida, and my family has has been encouraged. So, uh, thank you for being so welcoming, and uh, again, we're just grateful uh, for this opportunity and. Uh, if you want to know more about kind of uh, our journey to Jamaica, uh, it was it's kind of a, you know, Jamaica is a u- unique place to go as a missionary. Uh, there's, there's probably a lot of questions behind why you would choose Jamaica, uh, but I encourage you, if you come out this evening, I'll, I'll talk more uh, about that. So uh, this morning we're going to look at Second Samuel. Uh, Lord willing, we'll, we'll try to get through... Uh, the three chapters. I even left half of chapter 16 off my list because uh, it's kind of a dividing point, but hopefully we'll, we'll get through it. Uh, if not, we might towards the end start <laughs> going through some things quickly. But let's start in Second Samuel chapter 13, reading in verse 1. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar. For she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother. And Jonadab was was a very crafty man. And he said to him, O son of king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother, Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar saying, go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down and she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan, emptied it out before him, but refused to eat. And Amnon said, send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. When Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cake she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, come, lie with me, my sister. She answered him, no, my brother, do not violate me for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred. So that hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up, go. But she said to him, No, my brother, 
for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went. And her brother Absalom said to her, has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. And we'll, we'll pause there. Let's just look to the Lord. Father, again, we just thank you for this opportunity we have to, to look into your word. And Father, I just pray that uh, the preaching this morning would not be done with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration and power of the Holy Spirit. I pray that uh, the people who are here would receive the word. We know that uh, this can be difficult for us to, to read through and, and understand, but you, we just pray that the Holy Spirit would guide us uh, this morning. And again, I just thank you that we, we have the, the freedom to gather together to look into your word. We know there are even possibly some gathering together on this day that don't have the freedom we have. We just pray that we would not take, take it for granted and take it lightly. We give thanks now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So just to kind of go over an overview of last week, because we have to understand kind of what happened last week. We don't have to, to get into to the details, but just have an overall picture. And we had David committing adultery with Bathsheba. And then he tried to, to basically cover it up by bringing Uriah back and saying, okay, go lie with your wife, go lie, go lie with your wife. But that doesn't happen because Uriah wants to serve David and so David goes, well, I'm just going to have to kill him by sending him to the front line. And then we get into chapter 12 where Nathan confronts David. And then we see that David repents of his sin. But as we go into this story now, and this is kind of where things begin to change. And we're going to go through, hopefully, the four different stories that we're going to read through 13 through 16. And we're going to look at the characters, the plot, what happened what was like a big turning point or the climax, and then a lesson that we can learn from it. Again, it's just one lesson that I'm pulling out from, from the story. So there's going to be many applications in the narratives. And again, th this first one is probably uh, the most, most difficult. And I'm not going to lie. Like right now, I, I, I literally <laughs> feel sick to my stomach because of, of what I want to talk about. And it's even more difficult because I don't know three quarters of you. So I only know about a quarter of you. But it was just th this morning that I was just praying, Lord, like, Lord, is this, is this truly what you want me to talk about? Is this? And I, I just felt like it should be. And I, you could probably even ask some of the brothers. I was asking, I was like, you know, who's here? Like, I just have something. No, just speak what's on your heart, brother. Speak what's on your heart. So. Uh, again, it, it, uh, this is a, a tough story to handle, and we're going to work through this. So in the first 22 verses we read of chapter 13, we have 
four characters. We have uh, Absalom, who is, uh, his father is David, King David. His mother was Micaiah, and he was the, uh, the thirdborn. You have Tamar, who her father was David, and her mother was Micaiah. And you have Amnon, who his father was David, but his mother was Aniam from, and he was the firstborn from her. So you have brothers and sisters. Absalom and Tamar are full sisters. They both have the, the same set of parents. And then you have Amnon, who has the same dad, King David, as Tamar and Absalom. And now you have this individual, Jonadab, and he is David's great nephew. So his father was Shimea, who was the nephew of David. So this is a family. <laughs> it's not, they're, they're, they're not, you know, long lost or whatever. They're, they're family. They, were all, they all knew each other, brothers, sisters, cousins. And uh, we have a situation. And the plot was written in a chiistic style. Now, a chiism basically is just a literary device that is just written like an arrow. So you have A, B, C, D, C, B, A. And what it does is they, they feed off of each other's points. It's a way for you to, to remember the story. It's kind of easier. So we see it, the plot in this, uh, in this specific uh, narrative. We have in verses 1 through 2, we see Amnon's desire for Tamar. And then in verses 3 through 7, we see Amnon's predicament and Jonadab's advice. So uh, Amnon's coming up to, you know, you could just see he's, he's ill because of his, of his love. We're going to look at that, of his love for his sister. And Jonadab sees that and, he, you know, he's like, well, what's wrong? And again, we read in <clears throat> verses, uh, basically we get through verses 8 through 10 where Jonadab convinces Amnon to say, just bring her into your house and he puts himself in a scenario now where he's alone with her because he's ill and have her make you some food. Let her, let her, let her treat you. And so in verses 8 through 10, we see Tamar at Amnon's house. And then we see Amnar's advances and Tamar's pleading. And then we see Tamar humiliated in verse 14. And let's read that, that verse again, verse 14. But he would not listen to her, and being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. So Amnon raped his sister. So he put himself in this predicament where he was alone with her. He, he, had a, uh, he lusted after her. I, I, don't, I, I don't like to use the word like He lusted after her, and he said, you know what? I'm stronger than you, I'm bigger than you, and I'm going to, to lay with you. And he forced her to lay with him. And so he humiliated her. And then we go back down to the other way now. And we see, and that, that's the, the climax. That's the whole turning point. That's where we're in the middle of the arrow now. That's point five. And now we go back to four. So we see Amnon advance in his Tamar's pleading. But now in this case, we see Amnon's rejection of Tamar and her pleading in verses 15 through 16. And then we see Going back to three, so three, the first three we read about was Tamar at Amnon's house. And now we read Tamar's expulsion. He kicks her out of the house. And then the two, the first one was Amnon's predicament and Jonadab's advice. Now we have Tamar's 
predicament and Absalom's advice. So in the first case, we saw the situation that Amnon was in. He wanted to be with his sister, and he gets advice from Jonadab. Now we see uh, Tamar and her predicament. She was just raped, and she gets advice from her brother, Absalom. And then finally, we see Absalom's hatred of Amnon. So we see Amnon's desire for Tamar, and now we see Absalom's hatred for uh, Amnon. And so what are some lessons that we can learn from this specific narrative? And the one thing that came to mind was, again, that climax where Tamar was humiliated. And we see lust. And lust is a, a big, big problem in our culture. Why? Because our culture says it's okay. <laughs> it's okay that you have these feelings and these desires of lust. So what is lust? A sexual dis- a desire that dishonors its object and disregards God. That's lust. So if you're married, <laughs> you can commit lust. You can have lust in your heart. It, do- it doesn't... It's any sexual desire that dishonors its object and disregards God. Did we see that with Amnon and Tamar? She obviously didn't want to lay with him. That's the first case. But she was even understanding how it's a disregard to God. So she understood both aspects of it. So this is our definition of, of lust. Well, how do we control it? But one thing we have to understand, too, is that we, we label different lust with too much emphasis sometimes. And so what, what do I mean by that? Well, Romans 1.27 says, And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So, I, again, like I don't know... I don't know more than half of you, right? But I know what's real. And what's real is that some have a lust for the same sex. What does our culture say? What does our culture say? Our culture looks and says, it's okay to feel that way. Don't deny your feelings. And so what happens in the church is we look at somebody. Just imagine if somebody came up to you and said, I am struggling I'm struggling with this sin of lust for another man. You, my first reaction would be, I, 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 would, I wouldn't want to do this. I, I just, I'd probably first walk away, but I'd probably be like, go read your Bible because what you think is wrong. And I would just look at him as an outcast. And we have to stop putting this, this label on people who struggle with this sin, right? We, we have taken it and we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about anger we have taken it and allowed it to almost rule our lives. And we get so angry with those individuals who struggle with this sin. But they're not the exception. Paul wrote about it in Romans. It was written 1980 years ago, 60 years ago, whatever it is. I didn't do the math. But, I mean, Paul was telling that there's people who did this. And what we need to do is... Now come under to that person and say, listen, I understand this is not weird. 
Don't think you're this outcast or don't don't think that God doesn't love you and that Jesus Christ didn't die for you because you have a lustful desire for men. I mean, we all struggle with it. It's all something we struggle. And we need to understand, well, how do we control this lust? And I kind of have two aspects. One is the controlling it, but we also have to explain the importance of, of sex, right? Because as a result, we like to, to act out on our lust, which would lead to sex. And uh, I'm going to get into that. But first, kind of controlling this idea of, of lust. Romans 13:14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So one way of, con- one way of controlling it is to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 5:16 through 25. Some of you may know these verses. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is the the biggest theological lesson we can learn from the book of Galatians is that it's the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruits. That was free. Okay, moving on. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So those who belong to Christ Jesus... You got to read that verse again, have crucified the flesh. So if you're claiming that you have followed Jesus Christ and you have not crucified the flesh, you got to ask yourself, am I going to inherit the kingdom of God? If we live by the spirits, let us also keep in step with the spirit. Let us not be conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. And how are we going to keep in step with the Spirit? Understanding who God is by being in His Word, crucifying the flesh. When those desires come, you kill them, you crucify them. 2 Timothy 2.22 So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call call on the Lord from a pure heart. Flee youthful passions. It's kind of like, as I was reading through this story, too, I kind of saw the, the opposite of what Joseph did. Right? Joseph was in a situation where Potiphar's wife was was coming after him. What did he do? He he fleed. But 
Amnon, and you would think to yourself, well, Tamar couldn't flee. That's right, but I'm relating it more to Amnon. He didn't have to put himself in the situation that he did. And so that's, but, but who did he learn that from? His dad, right? We just saw it in the last, look at the sin that he could, he just saw a woman and he's like, bring her here. Why, why would Amnon not think to himself, I see a woman, bring her here. We learn, we learn from what, what we see, but we have to flee youthful lust. Now, this other aspect is a thought that uh, I want to be, be careful about, but I think the problem is we don't think enough of sex. I didn't say that we don't think of sex enough. I just said that we do, <laughs> right? We, we probably think of it too much, but we don't think enough of sex. What is, what is sex a picture of? What is it? I mean, just, just read in, in Song of Solomon chapter 7. Listen to these words. This is, uh, again, the bridegroom d- describing his bride. Now, now, those who have interpreted the Song of Solomon, there's, there's those who, who would say that uh, we, we really shouldn't look at it allegorically in any sense. Like, this is not a picture of, of Christ and his bride, which is the church. Uh, some say we need to just take it as Solomon writing this. And, but, but others would say that it, it's a clear picture of, of what it is for, for what it's going to be like for the bridegroom to take his bride. And I kind of agree with that because we see that the bride talks about the blackness of, of her, her inward being. You, she doesn't mention that about the, bride, the bridegroom. So I, I kind of take that position. But this is what, any, regardless how you feel about it, it's in the word of God. And this is what the man thinks of his bride. Why should you look upon the Shulamite as upon a dance before two armies? Now, this is the, that was 6.13, but going to one. How beautiful are your feet and sandals, O noble daughter. Your rounded thighs are like jewels. The work of a master hand, your navel is rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are pools in Heshbon by the gate of Bathrabim. Your nose is like a tower of Lebanon, which looks towards Damascus. Your head crowns you like caramel and your flowing locks are like purple. A king is held captive in the tresses. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. Your statue is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters. I say I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. Oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine, and the scent of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. Going on. Now, this is the this is the bride. It goes down smoothly for my beloved, gliding over lips and teeth. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. And here we have that the bride gives the bridegroom her, 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 his love. Right? Come, my beloved, let us go into the fields and lodge in the village. Let us go out to early to the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded, whether the grape blossoms have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes give forth fragrance, and beside our doors are all choice fruits, new as well as old, which I have laid up for you, O my beloved. 
And so we, we see that sex is a great gift from God. And it's a picture of something before we get there. But think about, think about what I said. We don't think enough of sex. I didn't say that we don't think enough. We don't think of sex enough. So we don't think enough of sex. And what happens? So your kids come up to you, right? I mean, I'm, I'm kind of nervous about it now. My daughter, she's only three. And she goes, I'm a mommy and I have a, ba- I have a baby in my belly. And I'm like, uh, I'm looking. I'm like, pretty soon she's going to ask me where the baby came from. And I, I tell myself, like, I'm not going to, you know, oh, yeah. So, you know, you have our teenage daughter. They come up to us and they start asking us all these questions. And what do we do? Like, no, don't have sex. Like, we don't even, don't, don't do it. Don't do it. And of course they shouldn't. But what I'm saying, don't do it. But dad, you and mom and, you know, me, I'm here. Like, what? You know, it's, yeah, yeah. But, but just, just don't do it now. You do it later. Okay? You do it later. And what happens is they're not understanding what it is a picture of. And what, what, I've, what I've thought in my mind is that if the, the bridegroom is going to come and he's going to take his bride, what happens? The consummation where they, it's, it's practical of, of a Jewish wedding. When they're married, they go in and it's, it's kind of finalized and stamped by them lying with each other, by having sex. And Revelation 19, 18, uh, 19, 8 through 9, it talks about how um, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed are those. And sex is a, is a picture of what it's going to be like for us to come and be in the presence of our Lord and Savior when he comes for us. And that's serious. We're going to be full of joy, and it's going to be an ecstasy that we can't even imagine. Nobody can even describe it. That's what sex is about. Don't mistreat it. Don't misuse it because you want to fulfill your lust and disregard God and why he created it. What about even when you're married? Is that what's in your mind as you're, as you're taking your wife? And I speak very open and honestly, and it is... It breaks my heart even when I, just, when I just mentioned it. And I talked to my wife this morning about how I was going to talk about it. And right away she, she started to cry. And I cried. And, uh, you know, it's, it, it's, it's, not enjoy, it's, it's not enjoyable for me to talk about. But I was one who fulfilled the desire of my lust and had sex outside of marriage. And I can tell you from first hand that it is tough on the marriage, especially in the beginning. It was tough. And like I said, when I went and I looked at my wife and I told her, I'm like, are you okay if I share that? She looked at me and she just started crying and she didn't even say yes or no. But like, <laughs> it just shows like how sensitive of a topic it is. And so when we fulfill our lust... It damages what God has created to be good. But I, I, I praise him that, that we can repent and he forgives us of our sins. And it, it, this is what I want to teach my daughter, though. Don't, don't not have sex because, you know, you got to just wait until you're married. Like God's torturing you. 
No, because when you become married with another individual, it is a picture of Christ and the church. And when you become one flesh and you you consummate, that is a picture of what it's going to be like for us being with our Savior. So looking at this story, I know it's probably like, man, how did we get from Amnon raping his sister to this? But it's important for us to understand how to control our lust and and how to, to just take care of it. Flee youthful passions. We, we know that they're, I know that you guys are struggling. I was there. Even, even being married, it's, you got to be aware of it. It's there. And we, we should not put ourselves in these circumstances and situations. Now, I have till 1.30, Mr. Skelton. Where'd he go? He told me 1.30. Is that true? No, it's not true. All right, but we're going to move on. Uh, again, hopefully that, that was kind of a clear understanding of lust and how we have to, to, to take care of it and, and take heed of it and, and walk, uh, again, in the, in the spirit of God. So in first, uh, again, Second Samuel 13, reading uh, from verse 23. After two full years, Absalom had shirpshears at Belhazar, which is near Ephraim, and Absalom invited all the king's sons, and Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, your, shirt, your servant has sheep shears. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. He pressed him, but he would not go, but, he, but gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's son arose, and each mounted his mule and fled. While they were on the way, news came to David, Absalom has struck down all the king's sons. And not one of them is left. Then the king arose and tore his garments lay on, and lay on the earth. And all his servants who were standing by tore their garments. But Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother, said, Let not my lord suppose that they have killed all the young men. The king's son, for Amnon alone, is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day he violated his sister Tamar. Now therefore, let not my lord... The king, so take it to heart as to suppose that all the king's sons are dead, for Amnon alone is dead. But Absalom fled, and the young men who kept the watch lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, many were coming from the road behind him by the side of the mountainside. And Jonadab said to the king, Behold, the king's sons have come, as your servant said, so it has come about. And as soon as he had finished speaking, behold, the king's sons came and lifted up their voice and wept. And the king also and all his servants wept very bitterly. But Absalom fled and went to Talmah, the son of Amuhud, king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son day after day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. So we, again, these are the characters. We have Absalom, King David, Amnon. We have the servants of Absalom, and we have Jonadab. 
And so it was two full years have passed is what to happen uh, to Tamar. And uh, Absalom comes to King David. He says, I got this, you know, big party going on. Like, I want to bring everybody. Like, you too, Dad. You come too. Let's all go and, you know, we'll all celebrate. And David goes like, no, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to press that up on you. Like, I think you should just go. Go ahead. You know, don't bring anybody with you. But he's like, no, no, no. Let everybody come. Come on. You know, it'll be fun. We'll be fun. He's like, all right, everybody can go. While they're there, Amnon, he gets a little tipsy. You know, he's happy. He's drinking. Thinks he's living a good life. Right? He got his, you know, he just two years ago, he was able to take a woman. He got rid of her. And now, who knows what he's, what he's doing now, but he's all happy-go-lucky, and he's getting drinking, and then boom, he's dead because Absalom kills him. And so Absalom, again, that's our plot. He plans the murder of Amnon, and we see the, the, the climax there in 28 through, through 29 where he, uh, the servants uh, actually kill Amnon and one lesson that just was so clear to me, this was anger and what we need to do with anger. So this was two years. Absalom was furious with Amnon and what he did to his sister. Furious. I think we would all be furious, right? Even if it wasn't, I mean, not only was it his brother, you know, not only did his sister get raped, but it was his brother who raped his sister. We'd all be furious with him. But how are we to control our anger? Ephesians tells us, Ephesians 4:26 through 27 would tell us, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So we have this idea of be angry and do not sin. So we know that anger is not a sin. God is angry with the wicked every day. Psalm 7:11. We know that anger is not a sin. But when Paul's writing this letter, he's not giving you a command to be angry, right? His idea behind this saying is this whole chapter is to prevent us from falling into sin. He, he talks in uh, Ephesians 4, 16, has the, the old has passed away, you're, you're new. You know, you're to live a new life in Christ. And he says, be angry and do not sin. His emphasis is that we almost can't do that. It's almost impossible for us to be angry. And the the command that we actually get is don't hold on to the anger. Anger has to be dealt with quickly. And then it has to be let go. It's important in a marriage. And again, I'm I'm married. And I've only been married five years. So I usually talk about, (laughs) that's my my situation of life right now. So when I'm angry with my wife, Probably more because I don't like that she did something that I probably wanted her to do out of the selfish reason. It's probably not even the right reason. But when I'm angry with her, I need to deal with that anger and I need to let it go. I can't hold on to anger. And then he kind of gives us the, the reason why. Well, anger will lead to other sins. And what happens is it gives Satan an opportunity to say, that individual's mine now. Look at him. He's angry. And what does he do? What is it? What, right? Then he just, we just start feeding into the anger. Yeah, you're, you're righteous in your anger. You have every right to be angry with that individual for how they wronged you. Yes, Absalom. Yes, absolutely. Go and kill your brother. It's been t- two years. He raped your sister. Do it. Kill him. It gives Satan an opportunity to just come in and destroy us. And the, the funny thing is that 
there's only one who has righteous anger, and that's God. And when he looks and he's angry with sin, and he's able to forgive people, right? So God will look and he'll say, this person has repented, he has confessed his sin, I'm able to forgive him. But we fall into scenarios where we don't forgive people even after they're repentive of their sin. We're still angry with them. So they wronged us, they apologize, and they say, I'm not going to allow this to happen again. You know, they're repentive, and we don't forgive them. And we hold on to our anger. And then, then when we see them, boom, it's just another opportunity for sin to enter the door. But what are you doing when God has forgiven them and you're not forgiving them? What are you doing? You're claiming that your anger is the standard that should be set, not God's anger. God can forgive them all he wants, but I'm not going to forgive him. That's blasphemy. <laughs> You're basically looking at God and just saying, God, you can forgive him, but I'm not. And you know what? I have every right to do because he wronged me. You're putting yourself above God when you're not forgiving somebody. And this is what Absalom did. He didn't forgive Amnon for what he did. Now, we don't have the whole situation if, if Amnon went to him and, and confessed to him. But still, anger has to be dealt with. Otherwise, it gives opportunity for t- Satan to say, yes, you know, Satan will look at it and just say, I own you. I'm gonna, I can just control you just through this anger. And again, we see Absalom, and this is just make a note of it. What was Absalom doing? Who was he following in the footsteps of? His father, right? What did David do? <laughs> Killed Uriah. He's a murderer. What did Absalom do? You know what? And Absalom even thought, my dad killed someone because he wanted his wife. I'm going to kill someone because he took a life. He took my sister's life from her. I have to suffer through that. He doesn't. I'm going to kill that guy. So he probably thought, it's no problem. Go ahead. Kill him. Moving on. And we're kind of running out of time, although I have an hour and 45 minutes, but uh, (laughs) running out of time here. We have uh, 2 Samuel 14. And uh, this was the story of uh, Joab. He took a woman, her name was Tekoa, I hope I say that right, and he told Tekoa, okay, go in, uh, we, we got to get Absalom back here, right? I, I, I want Absalom to, to rule, like, we got to get him back, so how are we going to get him back? And he takes this woman, and this woman comes in, and she starts, she makes up this story, and she says, okay, uh, you know, David, I, I'm in this situation, uh, both sons, both sons of mine got into a quarrel, one murdered the other. Now the town people want to go and find this individual, my other son, and they want to kill him too. Can you offer me a pardon? Because then I'm going to be a widow, and then my husband's name will, will not go on. And, and David thought in his mind, in his heart, and he said, okay, you know what, that's, that's, that's what I'll do. I'll, if, go back to your people and tell them David said it was okay that they should not kill that individual. And then she turns around and she goes, well, how come you're doing that with your son? So now Absalom, remember, he, was, he ran away, and David did not want him to come back. He was, he was angry with him. And Absalom needed to be, to, he, should have be, he should have been put to death. That was the penalty of his sin. But David didn't do that, probably because he was feeling guilt. But he did banish him and send him away and just wanted him to be no more. After Absalom fled, he said, just fine, leave him away. But now he wants to come back. And 
in uh, verse 21 of chapter 14, kind of the, the, the turning point there is we read, The king said to Joab, Behold, now I grant this, go bring back the young man Absalom. And what comes to mind here, I, I thought about how, how David was deceived. Absalom made no type of repentance to say, like, Father, I'm sorry, I'm not going to do it again, like, just please forgive me, like, let me back in. To It wasn't even Absalom. I'm, I probably would have respected that a lot more. No, Joab comes in and creates this whole thing, and, and David was deceived by it. So he made this ruling that was a fictitious story, and he goes, well, I guess you're right, and he was deceived by that. So what do we have to be careful of? Deceivers. And that's kind of what I thought about. In 2 Corinthians 11, 3 through 6, we read, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes in and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you have received a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these Super apostles, even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. Paul came to the church at Corinth and he preached the gospel. And then they had these other individuals coming in and the Corinthians were actually giving them the time of day. And I think back to like, why was David even kind of, he found out in that story that this, that this woman was sent by Joab. Why was he giving her the time of day after that? Get rid of her. She's trying to deceive you. And again, how are we deceived? Right? Satan deceived Eve by an appeal to her mind and to her thoughts. And that's what the false teachers were doing in Corinth. And that's what Tekoa and Joab did to David. We should not put up with deceivers. And we should be ready to know that somebody is a deceiver. How they present the word, especially when it comes to the gospel. We don't want to change anything about the gospel. So we need to beware of deceivers. And we get that from, from 2 Samuel chapter 14. Don't put up with deceivers. Let it be taken care of right away. And then finally, or no, there's two more, but we have uh, Absalom where he comes in and he overthrows David. So we don't have time to, re- to read this, this whole story, but David lets him back in. There was about a period of time where he was, he was sitting there and he would sit out in front for about four years. The people that would be coming to, to go receive like fair judgment from, from David, he'd, he'd be sitting there and he'd pull him to the side. And he said, oh, no, I'll take care of it. I'll take care of it. I'll take care of it. And he started to grow a likeness of the people of Israel. And then he started to plot and plan. And he was able to, through uh, Ahathophel, go in one of David's kind of advisors, you know, servants to go in and almost use him to help him with this overthrow. So we have Absalom comes in and he overthrows David. David flees. And so lessons I looked at this, there was, there was two separate lessons, right? One, I felt like David was, was failing as a leader. And, and we, can, we can look at, at leadership and we, we read a First Peter 5, right? It talks about the responsibility uh, of elders, but, but this can also be true of any of us as we're leading. First Peter 5, 1 through 4. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. I don't think David was exercising his oversight. I, I, didn't, I didn't see that. 
not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. I, I, I love reading about leadership from the world's perspective. And you're like, what? But from the world's perspective, because you know why everybody in the business world is changing to this idea of servant leadership. It was not like that 30, 30 years ago. There was no books on telling you about don't come in and, and put your, your, your fists down. Like, that's what they wanted you to do. Now they want you to come in and be like, you know what? I'm just going to be a servant leader. I'm going I'm to show these people how to do what it is that they're supposed to do. And that's, that was, this was written how long ago? God's been telling leaders to do that from the beginning. Be a servant leader. But then there's this other side of it, too, as, as far as, as submitting. And we just see the responsibility that we have to submit as well, we see in 1 Peter 5, 5 and Hebrews 13, 17, we have the responsibility to submit to the elders. And then Ephesians 5, wives to their, to their uh, husbands. And David's failure with Absalom, we see that Absalom was not submissive to his father. And moving on, our last one is talking about David, and he has two situations. He's blessed, he's provided for, and then somebody comes in and, is, and he's cursed. And so we see that we, we read about provision in the word of God and we, we know that, you know, God provides for us. Matthew 6 is very clear. Like, don't worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. He provides, you know, grass for the lilies of the field. What about us? He provides clothes. He provides for us. And David's example is great because even as David is being cursed, even as David is being cursed, he, he looks and he says, the Lord has told this man to curse us. Let him curse us because his soldiers are going to, about to ready to take care of it. But he said, no, we're not going to do that. And in 1 Thessalonians 5.19, or 5.19, we're to give thanks in everything. So even as we're going through those times where we feel like we're being cursed, we're to give thanks for that. But Ephesians 5.20 would also encourage us to give thanks for everything. So we should even be thankful for it as it's happening to us. Uh, but so we're, our time has gone and come. I see everybody leaving on me. But it's okay. Uh, I understand I probably would have left too. But uh, just kind of an overview of what we can get from each of these lessons. We have lust, where we get the, from the first story. We see anger from Absalom and him killing Amnon. And then we have the third lesson from David being deceived by, by Joab and Tekoa and then and to bring Absalom back. And then we see Absalom failing to submit to the authority over him and also for... Uh, David to lead his son. He could, have, he could have stepped in, but we don't see that he actually did that. And then about how God provides for us, both in good ways and sometimes in ways that we would think are bad, but in reality they're not bad. It's just our perspective of that. So we're to, to again, give thanks for everything. And, again, my, my final challenge kind of leads to, to what we, we saw as a result of David and his sin with Bathsheba. And now, now that when you, when you bring kids into the picture, they're looking at you as an example. But even when you're here, a kid might be looking at you as an example. And we see that his sons probably looked at David and they saw, like, here's my father who took on a woman. They, they had a baby and, and, you know, he killed her husband. And, and look at the result of what's happening. David repented and he confessed his sin. 
So just because we repent and confess our sin doesn't mean we're not going to receive the consequences of our sin. And that is what David's getting into. And now he finds himself not even on the throne anymore in Jerusalem. And that was a result of the sin. So, again, thank you for uh, this opportunity. And I I trust that that this was a a blessing. And um, I, I only went through 2 Samuel 16, 1 through 14. So whoever has the responsibility next week, uh, try to just mention that, that topic as well. So let's, uh, let's pray. Father, again, we are just thankful for uh, this time that we can g- gather together and just look into your word. We thank you uh, again that you, you speak to us through your word. You speak to us through the Holy Spirit. We uh, thank you for the example uh, of the Old Testament, Father, for we know that we can, we can look at it and just... Uh, get gleamers of hope and how we should live our lives, Father, and, and just how we should do all things to bring honor and glory to you. And we, we look at these examples that we find in 2 Samuel 13 through 16 and uh, how you know, we just see Amnon just being overtaken by his lust. I just pray that that would not be, be true of any of us who are here, Father. I pray that you would, uh, again, a- allow the Spirit to just rule in our lives and just that we would be yielded to the Holy Spirit and, and again, that we can walk in the steps of the Spirit, Father. So again, we just uh, pray for uh, the rest of the day and just the the time that you've given to us. We just pray that you would just be a a blessing to us. And just, again, we think of the week that's ahead. We just pray that we would, uh, again, sin less than we did last week and that we would do more for your name's sake, Father. Again, we give thanks now in Jesus' name. Amen.